Okay, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 11, and we might get there today. If not, we'll get there soon. One of the things I want to teach on in the either today or the near future is something I call the fool's resume. The fool's resume. And just to give you a hint, it's all the way from 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen through 12, 10, where Paul plays the part of a, of a fool and does a speech in character, which is not unusual for him because Romans 1, 18 to 32 is also a speech in character. And uh, before we get started, it's good to see Lieutenant Colonel Affolder with us today. Every time I see him, he's got a different rank. He's between him and Jasmine. You guys are getting promotions every other week or so, but uh, it's good to see you and good to, yeah, okay, go ahead. Applaud. Um, usually before I teach, I like to, if I don't tell you to do it, at least I do it, is cast our anxieties upon the Lord, our concerns upon the Lord, so that we can have an undistracted attentiveness and be attentive undistractedly to the Word of God, which is so essential and all the more important in this time of holiday busyness. And so I'm asking you to cast this care with me on the Lord as I learned this morning, my mom is in pretty serious blood infection, and I had to call her into the hospital today, and just heard that from my sister this morning. So I would ask you to, I know she would covet your prayers and uh, in the church here, because she has a very, you're all in her heart all the time. So if you would mind, wouldn't mind praying throughout the day, if you think of her, and I'm certainly doing that now, presenting her before the throne of grace. So I appreciate it. I'll be seeing some of the, uh, or if not all, the teachers right after the service today. I'm excited to see you, and I wish I could thank you in a way that's appropriate, but there's no way. So I just appreciate co-laboring together with the teachers of the Sunday school and teenagers. I never, sometimes I never see you all through the year except maybe bumping in the hall, but we are always co-laboring together and always have you in my heart, and I know that I might even be in yours. All right. First of all, in our growing insight into Romans, I know for some people I'm going a little too fast in terms of the insights that we're receiving, but that's Okay. Every once in a while, I plan to, and you can pray for this too, I plan to write a summary of what we've done We've done up to this point. Every once in a while, every 20 messages or so, I'll put something on the website that summarizes and explains where we are right now in this, especially in this most critical series called Better Call Paul. This is the most critical, the most advanced, the most cutting-edge insight that I've ever received, and I believe that it's the most important series we've ever had to date. And to introduce this, first of all, I want to kind of summarize what Romans is. Romans, in one sense, is the best of the Pauline epistles, and I'll explain what I mean. You could say that about almost all of them. But the best in terms of clarity of presentation of Paul's gospel, which is really the gospel of God about his son. And it recalled to my mind something that I used, I think it was in the 37th lesson of Revelation, from Thomas Aquinas, from Summa Theologica, part two of part two, question 145 in article four. And of course you remember that reference. But he said this, and consider this, because it's very pithy, it's very succinct, but it explains a whole lot of what Romans is all about. He said, opposites are most manifestive of one another. Opposites are most manifestive of one another. And this goes along with my thesis, which agrees with Douglas A. Campbell's thesis, and I'm trying to advance in my own way on this, but 
that this is a dialectic of contradictories. In other words, if something is going to reveal the clarity of something else, what more can do it than its opposite? And so Romans actually is the presentation of Paul's gospel in contrast to its opposite. Its opposite is presented by one whom Campbell is named, and I'm going to try to do better, but he's called the teacher. And by that I mean not better than he did, but a better name for this guy. The teacher, in almost all of Paul's communal epistles, all ten of them, he has a third-party interloper that he has to deal with. And very interestingly, as Pastor Henry asked this week, could that teacher be the thorn in Paul's flesh? Well, I thought about this, and Paul did say that there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, angelos of Satan, a messenger of the adversary. And when he besought the Lord, he begged the Lord, please take this away from me. I mean, I've only had a little bit of this feeling where somebody that may think that they're theologically astute attacks my gospel and can't understand where I'm coming from, and you hear a little bit about it. And that, that's kind of painful, but to me, it's probably a little pinprick, but Paul had a thorn driven into his side. And this, this guy went everywhere Paul went and presented essentially the opposite gospel. And the Lord said to him, my grace is enough for you because you see Paul power is perfected in weakness. Meaning my power is fully engaged in your total weakness. So he leaves this thorn in Paul's side until he writes his final communal epistle to the Romans where he has gotten the point of this teacher's gospel. He understands exactly what he presents, and Paul exposes it, especially in Romans 1, 18 to 32, and then on the way, all the way through, really, Romans 1 through 3, and then parts of 4. He exposes it, and by exposing this opposite gospel, glorious clarity is placed upon his gospel. Every other interpretation that does not see this contradictory dialectic going on, this rhetorical strategy of Paul, is confused or blends these two Gospels together. And so you get a construal of it today that is really a tragedy of Western thought. It has become a tragic flaw of theology. And I think that it's time to heal that flaw and address that tragedy. The great physician our Lord Jesus Christ is bringing a healing of that. Now, I've coupled that with 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, where Paul said there must be heresies. Dissensions, in other words, involving in many cases false teaching or a false gospel and other ways that there are these sects that are created is by a divisive and exclusionary loyalty to men. Some of, and again, I don't want to emphasize this, but I do want you to know that I identify slightly with it. Some of my detractors detract from my teaching because they say that I have left the teaching of so-and-so. And I have, or I have defected from the teaching of so-and-so. Failing to recognize what I've recognized, my calling didn't come from men. My calling preceded any affiliation I've ever had. My calling was given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. And not, I wasn't called to consider any man, especially in our present age, as a standard of orthodoxy. And that's where people come from. When they're, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos, I am of Dr. So-and-so, I am of this person or this person. They are immediately setting up a divisive loyalty. And there's no man that's a standard of orthodoxy. The closest to it is Paul who received his gospel directly by an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that I preach. And so my whole career has been trying to fine-tune the precision of this gospel. And this series will represent its most precise 
fine-tuning. And so Paul said, there must be heresies among you in order that the approved ones may be manifested. Just a couple of Greek words. Dokimoi, that means approved. Dokimoi, approved. And then P-H-A-N-E-R-O-I, phanoroi. The approved ones might be manifested. Now remember what Aquinas said. Opposites are the most manifestive of one another. So Paul says there must be heresies among you so that the approved ones will be manifested. Phanerao is a very unusual word, and it's a key word in Paul's gospel. It's used in Romans 3.22, for example. Phanerao is virtually equivalent to apocalypto. They both mean to manifest, to make clear, to reveal, to disclose. And in both of these cases, God's grace and God's love and his limitless benevolence is what is being exposed in the gospel. So the apostle has kept this thorn in his side, and he needed this thorn to write Romans because he needed to finally master what this other guy was up to, this messenger of Satan. And so by the time he writes Romans, he has for us, he has given to us the greatest gift possible, the most clear manifestation of the gospel of God's son. That's all about Christ. That's all about his son. That's resurrective. That's transformative. That's purely unconditional and gracious. Now, let me give you an example of this. The other gospel And Paul addresses this again more sharply in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, where he uses the language of his opponents and says, let so-and-so be accursed. He's being ironic there. Paul doesn't curse people. But he's saying, let so-and-so be anathema if they bring to you another gospel, heteros, heteros, related to heresy also, another gospel, which is not even deserving of the title gospel because gospel means good news. And it certainly isn't good news if you are saved by circumcision followed by a comprehensive following of the Torah. That's not good news. But that was the gospel of this other teacher. Now, what you don't want to get wrong here is that Judaism, practiced by the Jews for thousands of years, had nothing to do with earning your salvation by works. That's been a slander against Judaism. And it's become a kind of an anti-Jewish interpretation of Paul's gospel. Paul never spoke evilly of the Jews. He did have a gripe with one single Jew who both misinterpreted the gospel and the law. The Torah was never given to save people. God's covenant is always unconditional toward people. The law was never given for salvation. This is a distortion of the law, a distortion of Judaism by this particular teacher. And so he has a gospel. And I'll tell you some of the features. This will just summarize some of them. And I'm I'm praying for you too, both ways in your travel today, that you've come all this way in what is my worst hateful kind of weather. The kind of weather where it looks wet, but it might be ice. Just be careful on your way home. And I hate that, and we didn't have time to deal with that, and it came up this morning. So you came out, so I want to give you some of the clear. I wasn't going to do this. I was going to go right to the full speech, which I'm totally qualified to make, incidentally. But and maybe I'll even hit that really quick and then re- revamp it a little bit down the, down the road. The other gospel. Now, bear in mind that in Galatians, Paul also In a more dramatic way, which has to be preached instead of taught, he's presenting a dialectic of contradictories and most manifestive of the true and real gospel is its contrast with this other gospel. Let me give you a few characteristics of this other gospel. The other gospel is individualistic. It has to do with each individual. It emphasizes human capacity, both rational in understanding the creation, and ethical in being able to behave after circumcision, for example. It emphasizes human choice, 
Here's the sticker. This is the one that really gets to people, and it really cuts out the last prop that they depend on. The gospel of this human teacher depends on human choice, human faith, human deserving, and therefore it is anthropocentric. It's individualistic. It's anthropocentric. Even worse, it's contractual rather than covenantal. Because it's contractional, contractual, it's conditional. It's a conditional gospel. And this week we dealt with what I call Latin misses, the way the Latin misinterpreted and mistranslated, even as Augustine mistranslated Aeonios and put it as Eternus and never made the distinction. So the word for contract was inserted into the biblical covenant. The covenant is berith in the Hebrew, diatheke in the New Testament Greek, but it was foides in the Latin, which means stipulation or contract. And so Western theology interpreted covenant as a conditional contract with stipulations placed on both parties. Whereas the Bible presents the covenant, God's covenant, his eternal covenant, as it calls it in Hebrews 13.20, his eternal covenant is unconditional toward man. Man doesn't meet any conditions to get in, or nor does he have to meet conditions to stay in. There are obligations in this covenant, and the obligations boil down to faithfulness. It's on the basis of faithfulness that we will be evaluated and for that, I, you, I choose a couple of verses like 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. We are stewards of the mysteries of God, Paul says. And of a steward, one thing is required. That's faithfulness. Therefore, in 1 Corinthians three ten to 12, all those who build, all those who build upon the foundation will be evaluated on what materials they use to build upon that foundation. The foundation is never in question, even as the covenant never presents conditions. The foundation is never in question because a covenant doesn't present conditions for entry or for staying in, but it does present an obligation, and that's faithfulness. The difference between Paul's gospel and this other guy's gospel, however, is that the faithfulness is the continuing faithfulness of Jesus Christ in his people who recognize they're crucified with him and raised with him. So the other gospel is individualistic. It emphasizes human capacity, human choice, human faith, human deserving, and so it's anthropocentric. The other gospel is contractual and therefore conditional. And circumcision and a comprehensive following of the Torah, according to Leviticus 18.5, which is misinterpreted by this teacher, is for salvation. Acts 15.1, the writer Luke explains that there were people coming around saying that you have to be circumcised to be saved and then to follow the Torah prescription after circumcision. And that, of course, is quite tragic. Judaism never prescribed this, incidentally, as a way of salvation. And the teacher did present it. So his gospel is a gospel of conditional soteriology. Now, this is where it gets a little tough because you're saying, well, this sounds a lot like the gospel I've heard from famous evangelists, televangelists, and even you from time to time in the past, you could say. And I would say, you're right. But we finally see Romans as a dialectic of contradictories where in some cases, another person is allowed to speak and this being the teacher, in order to do an expose of an opposite that makes most manifest the glorious, true gospel. Now, more on that in a minute. I think I'm going to go to the full speech of which, for which I am eminently qualified. So the, the, probably the worst thing about this other gospel, a conditional soteriology or salvation, which marginalizes or renders as basically insignificant the atoning work of Jesus Christ and his saving significance. And theologically, it presents God as a God of retributive justice, a violent retributive justice. 
Paul's gospel, on the other hand, is the gospel of God about his son, which he hits the ground running with in Romans 1, 2 through 4. He even pulls a breach of epistolary etiquette by saying the gospel about his son. He slams that home in Romans 1, 2 to 4 before he even greets the saints in Rome. He's anticipating the arrival of this Angelos Satana, this messenger of Satan, because he's been everywhere else, Corinth, Philippi. Thessalonica, in different ways, false teachers intervened. Colossae, well, he anticipates his arrival. Paul's gospel is about God's son, who was of the royal seed of David according to the flesh, that's Christmas, and declared to be the son of God, divine, that is, by his resurrection from the dead. Romans 1, 2 to 4. Then we follow an arrow straight to 116 to 17, which is the thesis verse of Paul's gospel, The righteous one there being Jesus Christ. The faithfulness there being Jesus Christ. The righteousness revealed is God. God's righteousness revealed in Christ's faithfulness. That's Paul's gospel. Faithfulness unto faithfulness, meaning God's people's faithfulness is the faithfulness of Christ continuing in the church. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That faithfulness that led him to death on the cross and then exalted him in resurrection so that he is now raised, seated at the right hand of the Father, enthroned, is a faithfulness that continues in his people. And therefore, there's human capacity out the window. It is God in you, both willing and working of his own good pleasure. See, Paul's gospel is a gospel about God's son. That arrow goes through to Romans 321 to 26, 321 to 26, and then on to chapter five and verse eight. Paul's gospel is communal, not individualistic. In other words, it's arguably universal. We'll say arguable universal. It's communal. It's has to do with a radical human incapacity. There's one thing perhaps Calvin got right, which is human depravity. I'll tell you what he didn't get right. God choosing people for eternal damnation, eternally, for his own glory. That's not only a false gospel. That's not only a heresy. That's a blasphemy. Blasphemy. Be careful when you say, I'm a Calvinist. Be careful. So, now then. Radical human incapacity requires divine unconditional grace for salvation. So that's Paul's gospel. Paul's gospel accentuates divine choice. An election that is not limited. An election that is an election of Jesus Christ in Luke 23, 35. He's the elect one. In 1 Peter 1, 20. In Isaiah 42 and throughout. He is the elect one. When God elected his son... He elected all people in his son in that sense. If you want to go Calvinistic, if God has a predestination to damnation, Jesus Christ received that, and he received the rejection. If you want to go with election, Jesus Christ received the election by his resurrection. And so there is a universality in Paul's gospel, and we'll say that's arguable. I'll have to make that clear through lower blade data. So, Paul's gospel is not anthropocentric, but Christocentric. Circumcision to Paul is something that happens to the heart performed by God in Christ. In fact, it was performed at Calvary. It's called the circumcision of Christ, which puts off the Adamic ontology. Paul's gospel then has to do with the circumcision of the heart performed by God in Christ, and then a spiritual life in which the Spirit empowers and enables Paul's gospel, therefore, is not contractual, but covenantal and unconditional, liberative, transformative, participative, resurrective. And I agree with Campbell. If it's all that, then it's got to be good for you. Got to be good for you. Again, it's covenantal, which means it's unconditional. It's liberative, means justification isn't a forensic imputation, but a liberating deliverance. A liberating deliverance because God's righteousness is his righteous act of rescuing his people. That's what God's righteousness is. And it's a salvific thing. 
So Paul's gospel, which is the gospel of God about his son, is covenantal, unconditional, liberative, transformative, participative. In other words, we're invited into participation with Messiah himself through the Holy Spirit. It is resurrective. It starts with you knowing that you've been raised together with Christ. In Paul's gospel, Christ is seen as the only mediator between God and mankind, and his atoning work is not only not marginalized, but essential and central. God, in Paul's gospel, is not presented as a God of retributive justice, but a God of fathomless benevolence and unrestricted love. Now, I said all that to say, summarizing what we have so far in Romans, we have two distinct, contradictory, irreconcilable gospels. Each one is manifestive of the other. The true gospel makes most clear how off this other gospel is. The false gospel, which Paul exposes point by point throughout, is most manifestive of the clear, true gospel. This is the only way, in my view, in my personal view, this is the only way to interpret Romans, by a dialectic of contradictories, especially Romans 1 through 4. And we're going to find out that, contrary to what this Jewish teacher taught, Abraham didn't undo the knot created by Adam. The second man, Adam, the second Adam, cut the Gordian knot that we all got tied up in in Adam. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. And as by one man condemnation came to all, so by one man justification or liberation into life came to all men. Romans 5.18. You know that already. We've already hit that in Revelation. So then, the second thing I want to say is the most controversial part of this interpretation is that Romans 118 to 32 is not Paul speaking in his own voice. It is rather a speech in character. And to illustrate this, I want to show you that there are other speeches in character by Paul, most famously, perhaps Romans seven, when he talks about, I try to do good and I try, I try to do good. Evil is done by me and I hate the evil, but I do the evil that I hate and I can't do the good. He is then, he's doing a speech of a person who's confused by this false teacher's gospel. And so that's a speech in character. Another instance of speech in character, and I think I'll go through this whole thing. We're taking giant blocks of Paul's epistles this time through. So it's a different style than before. It's not three years getting through Romans 1, verse by verse, word by word. It's big chunks of the Pauline epistles as we're going to get them in large segments. So this is different from what I usually do. But so another speech in character is that is like and unlike Romans 1, 18 to 32 is by Paul in his epistle to the Corinthians. It's called the fool's speech. Now, you know that Paul already said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, I'm a fool for Christ, but you, oh, you're kings and queens, being a little bit sarcastic, slightly. But here Paul does what I call, I would rather call it the fool's resume. Because in 2 Corinthians, there was a group of people called super apostles. And that's what they were known as. And they carried with them letters of recommendation from other men who spoke well of them. And Paul said to the Corinthians early on, this whole epistle hangs together. It's not a a group of letters pinned together. It's one letter. Because in 2 Corinthians 3.1, Paul says, there are those who need letters of recommendation. But he said, you are my letter of recommendation. An epistle known and read by all men. An epistle written by Christ, not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God. There's his letter of recommendation. But Paul is being attacked and assailed by these super apostles, which he calls pseudo apostles in 2 Corinthians 11. And so what he does is he actually announces, okay, from now on, I'm going to play the part of a fool. He's on stage. Now watch me, he says, I'm going to play the part of a damned fool. 
for a minute and give you my resume, my letter of recommendation, and why you should accept my teaching over theirs. And so Paul, acting the part of a fool, has this whole speech, and it's 1116 all the way through 1210, is a speech in character. It's not, it's Paul talking, but it's Paul talking as if he were a court jester, a fool. And he's making a letter of recommendation, which kind of slams his detractors just a touch. And so, uh, so this even longer instance of speech in character is called the fool's speech. Now, Paul had already said in 2 Corinthians ten twelve, there are people who compare themselves with themselves and measure themselves by themselves. They are not wise. That's a polite way of saying they are fools. So let me now, at this part of the epistle, Paul says, play the part of a, of a fool. What I've done for you, Merry Christmas, is translated 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen all the way through 12, 10, from the Greek text, so I could read it to you according to sense today and play the part of a fool, which some may say I'm quite qualified to do. But here it is, 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen. Paul says, I say again, don't take me for a fool. But if you do, at least put up with me as a fool so that I too may brag a little bit. The whole central thesis of this the verse I came to Pittsburgh on in November of 1978, 38 years ago, the verse I rode in here on was 2 Corinthians 10, 17. It is not he who commends himself who is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. And if anyone's going to boast, Paul alludes to, Roman, to Jeremiah 9, 23, let him not boast in anything but the Lord. Let him boast in the Lord. So Paul is doing this speech in character. What he's doing is he's mocking his detractors with his own resume. Only <laughs> it's a fool's resume. And then, but while he's doing this, he's also presenting to them the fact that God commended him, not men. That the Lord commends him and recommends him, not men. He received his gospel, not from men but from the Lord. And so again, look, look at what he says here. We'll have to go through the whole thing. Verse 17, what I'm saying in reply to this matter of boasting, I'm saying not as the Lord would have me speak. So here's, he's introducing a speech that isn't what he would normally say. Just as Romans 1, 18 to 32 is a speech in character of this false teacher which ends up with, or begins with, the wrath of God as being apocalypto, when Paul had just finished 117 with saying, the righteousness of God, which is God's saving action in Christ, is being apocalypto, from faithfulness, that's Christ's, to believer faithfulness, which is participation in Christ's faithfulness. That's Paul's gospel. Because the righteous one, which is Jesus Christ, shall be, shall live by resurrection because of his faithfulness. Because of his faithfulness to death, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, lives because of his faithfulness to the point of death on the cross. Christ is the righteous one. God's righteousness is being revealed in his saving action in Christ. Christ's faithfulness is being revealed, not God's wrath. God is not a God of retributive justice. Jesus didn't die to save us from God as I'll teach maybe closer to Christmas, Jesus didn't die to save us from his angry father. From the Old Testament God of wrath. He died to save us from our sins. And the consequences of those sins. So Paul said, I'm saying, what I'm saying now, in this matter of boasting, I'm saying not as the Lord would have me speak, but as a fool would speak. You can't any more clearly set it up. I'm speaking as a fool would speak. This marks the following speech as the fool speech. Paul plays the part of the fool partly to mock the super apostles, 2 Corinthians eleven five, who are always commending themselves. 2 Corinthians 10, 17 to 18. Again, if anybody wants to boast, let him boast in the Lord because it is not the person who commends himself that is approved. Notice the word approved, dokimoi, 
but he whom the Lord commends. How does the Lord commend a man of God? By the message of the man, by the message spoken in conviction and power and the Holy Spirit and clarity and having lower blade data supporting it. The Lord commends. So from this point all the way to 1210, Paul plays the comic role of a fool. In doing so, however, he writes a serious narrative here. A serious narrative that tells the Corinthians that he doesn't commend himself like the super, or as he calls them, pseudo-apostles, put 11.5 together with 11.13 do, but as the Lord commends him. So in verse 18 he says, Since many boast according to the flesh... Adamic ontology. Many boast according to the flesh. Is that true today? I think so. Not sure. So am I. And so they said, no, that's the next, let's consider this. So many boast according to the flesh, so I'll do the same thing. Here's me being a fool. What's a fool do? Boasts in the flesh. And Paul said to the Philippians, we have no confidence in the flesh, so beware of the dogs, beware of the... The mutilators, beware of the evil workers, that third-party interloper. So, for he says, that, and he really hits the Corinthians here, he says, For you gladly put up with fools, since you are so wise. In other words, they're receiving another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit, according to 2 Corinthians 11.1 1 and following. And as Eve was deceived by Satana, the serpent. So you're being deceived by another Jesus, the Jesus who needs to save us from the wrathful father. Another gospel, which he says is not the gospel that we've preached. It's not a gospel at all. There's that other gospel again. And you received another spirit. You mean by tarrying for the Holy Ghost, you didn't get the Holy Ghost? No. You got a ghost, and welcome to Ghostbusters. Now, let that sink in for a second. I'm going to do the same thing. You put up with fools because you're so wise. You put up with it if a man enslaves you, which is what this other gospel does. If someone destroys you, you let them do it. If someone punches you in the face, you'll take it. To my shame, I have to confess, we are too weak to do such things. I have to confess, he says, my resume says, I'm too weak to enslave you. I'm too weak to destroy you. I'm too weak to punch you in the face. Someone would say, have you ever felt like punching people in the face? All the time. But I have to... Defer to the Lord. But, and I don't mean by that any of you here. There's, there's, there's well, you, some of you know, there's other detractors that I want to punch in the face. But maybe someday I will face them down and destroy them lovingly in a debate. I don't know. But any, I, I don't want to waste my time with that right now. So, to my shame, I have to confess, we, that's Paul speaking for himself, are too weak to do such things. But when it comes to being daring enough to boast, he puts in parentheses now, just so you know, I'm speaking foolishly here now. This isn't the way the Lord would usually have me speak. I'm speaking foolishly. I also dare. I dare to boast. Here comes the fool's resume. Are they Hebrews? In other words, the Corinthians are all enamored because these guys speak Hebrew. Are they Hebrew speakers? So am I. Are they Israelites? Me too. Are they descendants of Abraham? And they make a big deal out of that in Romans 4. What shall we say? Is Abraham our progenitor after the flesh? Abraham's a big deal to these guys. We are children of Abraham, they said to Jesus. Why do you tell us we need to be liberated? We need to be free. Jesus said, because you're slaves to sin, you need to be free. And if you know the Son, you'll be free indeed. This wasn't the Jews per se. This was the opponents of Jesus Christ who distorted Judaism. So, 
He says, are they servants of the Messiah? Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? In other words, these are Christian Jews. Paul says, he stops a little bit and he says, I'm raving like a madman now. Are they servants of Christ? I'm raving like a madman now. Listen to my fool's resume now. I'm a better one. I'm better than they are as a servant of Christ. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a raving madman now. I'm a better one. Listen to my resume. And here it is. I love this. In troubles that is gone through in service to Messiah more abundantly than they are. As far as wounds inflicted on me in service of Messiah beyond compare, he could show him the scars in his body. Scars happen when you get lashed with 40 lashes minus one five times, caned three times, stoned one time, shipwrecked several times, clinging to driftwood in an open sea a night and a day, those things start to get you into a position where you don't look like Apollo and you, do not, you don't come forth with a, an appearance that's pleasing to the Greeks. So, Paul says, let me continue my... Re- oh, in prisons? Incarcerations? Far more! Far worse beatings. Near death? Question mark. More often. 24. At the hands of the Jews, I received 40 lashes minus one. As they used to say, the 40th one kills you. 40 lashes minus one. Five times. Three times. Just like the word three witnesses that Paul plays on throughout in 2 Corinthians 12 and 13. Three times, and when he says, I asked the Lord three times that he would take away this thing, and he said, no, my grace is enough for you. It'll teach you how to write Romans someday. I hope you got that point, because that's one of the major points. Three times, says verse 25, I was beaten with a rod. That's the Gentile way of punishing. Once, I was stoned. That means stoned and left for dead. Three times, shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift in the open sea. In my many travels I faced dangers by rivers, dangers from bandits, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers from false brothers. I've toiled and labored to exhaustion. Endured many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often not eating, cold and without sufficient clothing. Apart from these external things, I have the daily onset of pressure of my anxious concern for all the churches. Why? I ask. Because all the churches are being invaded by another gospel, bringing another Jesus. That gospel, let me tell you this right now, this might shock you a little bit, is more popular today than the one I'm preaching to you by a long shot. Only it's a a distortion. There's a modern twist to it having to do with justification by a decision that you make to believe. So then, apart from these external things, I have the daily onset of pressure of my Anxious concern for all the churches. Who in all the churches is weak and I'm not sharing their weakness? Who is scandalized and I don't burn? If I have to brag, I'll brag about the things that show how weak I am. Then he says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed for the ages knows I'm not lying. Paul's not lying on his resume, implying that some of the people called super apostles just might have been. Paul's life, in other words, looks a lot more like being handed over to death daily, paradidomy, like Jesus was handed over to death by his own countrymen to the Romans. How would this recommend Paul over these other guys? who don't have to suffer persecution. You know why? They're going along with the rest of the evangelical crowd with a mixture of goodness from mankind 
and a mixture of grace and works. Jesus, dot, 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 and something. And because he said, of the offense of the cross, I'm persecuted. But they want to escape the offense of the cross. They don't want to make it central and essential, but rather marginalize it. So they avoid persecution. So you see, his fool's resume here has got some serious backing with it. So he says here, and here's the one thing, 32. Oh, he says, as if he almost forgot. And at Damascus, and I can feel and hear what they're mumbling. Oh, now he's going to tell us what happened at Damascus. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ and had a great revelation. Oh, he's going to bring this up now, which has nothing to do with his weakness. Paul says, wrong. Listen to what he says. Oh, and at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city in lockdown in order to arrest me. And I was lowered in a rope basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Just when you thought he was going to emphasize his great vision of the Lord again, he brags about having to be let down through an apartment window in the wall around Damascus because the city was on lockdown because the governor under King Aretas at that time, and we know exactly that this was AD 36. We know exactly that this was 36 CE and it helps us immensely in the chronological teaching about Paul, the chronological order of Paul's history. I was lowered in a rope. At Damascus, here it comes, I saw Jesus. At Damascus, I was lowered in a basket. See, he's still emphasizing his weakness. So now in verse 12, he goes this way. Oh, you're going there now. He's continuing the fool's resume. He said, now it's becoming necessary. It has become necessary for me to boast. And then he says, not that boasting in itself is profitable, but now, that is in my resume of self-commendation, I will come to visions and revelations, and that word is apocalypses. I will come to visions and revelations. I know a man in Christ. That's a person apart from Adamic ontology. I know a man in Christ, who was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. This is Paul, knowing himself in Christ. You should say about yourself, I know a man or I know a woman in Christ. Know yourself. Socrates said, know thyself. I say, know thyself in Christ. And not in Adam. I'll come to visions, optasia. And revelations. I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. Paul never talked about that much. But they put him in a position where he had to put it in his resume. Because they had visions and revelations. Just like any good charismatic would nowadays. Whether this was an out of the body experience. Or in the body. I don't know. God knows. If this goes back to his time of being stoned to death, and that means stoned with stones. Paul spent no time at all in Colorado. Then he doesn't know. He knows he's caught up into the third heaven, which is not the lower atmosphere or the celestial heavens, but the third heaven where God lives. He knows he was caught up there. He doesn't know if it's an out-of-the-body experience or if he was taken up there bodily. Why doesn't he know? Usually you wouldn't know if you were stoned to death by real stones and laying there in a pool of your own blood, bleeding out. You wouldn't know. So he said, I don't know. Then he says, God knows. Then in verse 3, but I do know that such a man, again, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know. God knows. He emphasizes again. Was caught up into paradise. And heard things that can't be put into words. Things that a mere man is not allowed to speak. I will brag about this person. A man in Christ. 
I will brag about this person. But not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For even if I really wanted to brag, I wouldn't be a fool. In other words, if I did want to brag like these other guys do, I wouldn't be a fool in bragging. Why? Because I'd be telling the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one will think more of me than what he sees in me or hears from me. Not what he hears about me from detractors or sycophants. But what he sees in me and hears from me. That's all I would present to you. And because of the extraordinary character of the revelations, I don't like this part. Because I do, in a very slight way, identify with Paul. Because of the extraordinary character of the revelations, so that I wouldn't exalt myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of the adversary, with the purpose of beating me up so that I won't exalt myself. I've prayed many times in my life, Father, I don't get it. You've called me to preach your word. Why is this happening in my life? And this keeps coming up so that you don't exalt yourself. I've given you some things to teach on that are pretty remarkable. True, Lord. So this is happening to beat you up. And when you're beat up, you don't feel like exalting yourself too much. Okay. I get it. I accept it. You say, do you like it? No. The messenger of the adversary. In Paul's case, it was a messenger of the adversary. Sounds like Jesus talking to Peter. You saying the thorn is Peter? No, I am saying no. In Galatians 2, 14 to 16, Paul had a difference with Peter, a pretty severe one, a pretty amazingly severe one. Where Peter withdrew from the pagans under pressure from certain high-powered individuals in Jerusalem. Babylon, the great. This really gets you down to thinking about this because Paul says, I don't care what these men were. These super apostles. I don't, I don't care what they were. They don't add anything to me. I didn't get my gospel from them. I got it by revelation of Jesus Christ who revealed his son to me. And incidentally, if you see the son, you've seen the father. If you see Christ crucified, you see the father in crucified love. This whole idea of this God of the Old Testament, angry and wrathful, and the God of the New Testament, compassionate and lamb-like, is a false dichotomy. More on that coming, but let's close. Because of the extraordinary character of the revelation, so that I wouldn't exalt myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of the adversary. That could be the teacher, I think, with the purpose of beating me up so that I wouldn't exalt myself. Imagine everywhere you went and taught the gospel, some other codger came along and totally opposed it. And got a lot of followers in those churches. Paul's got to be saying, what's going on here? Concerning this thorn, I urge the Lord three times to withdraw it from me. Apparently, it was in a place he couldn't reach. I can't reach that thorn. Would you pull it out, Lord? And the Lord didn't say no. He just said, my grace is enough for you. My grace is enough for you. Think of that the next time you're tempted to say, I don't have the grace for this. (laughs) My grace is enough for you. For power is perfected in weakness. That is, I like the God's word to the nation translation. My power is strongest when you are weak. Even as opposites are most manifestive of one another, so weakness is most manifestive of the power of God's grace. For this reason, he says, here he ends his fool's resume. I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in distress, in persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Messiah. Because it's exactly when I'm weak that he is powerful. I would say this. He needed this thorn to stay in his side so he could write Romans, in which 
The thorn stayed in his side long enough. The messenger of Satan, which Jesus, again, remember what Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a scandal and offense to me. How much more is this messenger of Satan who is unnamed and whom I don't know who it was by name. I, I don't think anyone really knows who it was. There's a category. There's a whole class of people it could have come from. What about God leaving that opposition there all the time so that when Paul finally wrote Romans in the spring of 52 AD, his last communal epistle, he would be able to distinguish these two gospels with such clarity and such power that we would have the greatest insight into the fathomless, benevolent love of God. But what's happened? Romans has been interpreted as a forward way of that Paul is saying, well, here you, everybody has to try the law and it doesn't work. And so you have to get in despair. And in your despair, you call upon the name of the Lord and you're justified by faith. That's forward reasoning. That's not what Paul's doing in Romans. He's distinguishing with radical clarity. He is distinguishing two opposite Gospels in which there's no reconciliation. I'm sure at the end of his road or at the judgment, the evaluation day when he's evaluated, he will say, Father, thank you for leaving the thorn in my side because at the end, I was able to manifest most clearly the glorious gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God, whom the God of this world is trying to obscure. You could make it possible for me to make it eminently clear in Romans how glorious this gospel is compared to its opposite, which was preached by a messenger of Satan. And I have to say with an almost heartbreaking agony, a gospel accepted by the majority of American Christians today. It is called American Pelagianism, a cooperation of God in you for your salvation, a conditional soteriology, an anthropocentric Jesus and me individualism, which is not the biblical individualism, a election of some, a limited atonement, and all the features of this thing. And so my whole thing is, if Darwin and Freud and Marx and Engels and all of the philosophers that have influenced our age so greatly to where there's almost an eclipse of true values, this other gospel doesn't stop the eclipse. This other gospel aids and abets this thing. But recovering at this time in history, the gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God in its unconditional, universal, Christ-honoring, God-honoring, God's righteousness demonstrated through Christ's faithfulness, Christ and him crucified, buried, raised, ascended, and seen at God's right hand. If this gospel can be manifest now, it can and it will stop the eclipse of value and present rather a transcendent set of values in which we live a life that is ethical only by the power of the Spirit and spiritual only because it's a participation in Christ's faithfulness. This is what rolls back the rolling blackout over Western culture. Western theology has aided and abetted this eclipse, including Reformation teachers including evangelicals, including me individually, I have to say, in times past, I have not rightly divided the word of truth in Romans. But now, but now, by the grace of God, we're doing it. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Thank you that you've shown us in your word that there are many times in which speeches and character are made so Romans 1, 18 to 32 is not an anomaly. It's not something alone. It's not something bizarre. But something that 
in which Paul presents the viewpoint of another. And we're grateful for your servant, Thomas Aquinas, who said opposites are most manifestive of one another. Thanks for leaving the thorn in Paul's side long enough for him to make most manifestive the glory of this true gospel as it's contrasted irreconcilably with this false gospel of this false teacher. Thank you for this. And thank you, Father. I pray that you'll give us safety in our travels today and all of our families. As I always pray, Tetelestai and our families, that they'll be granted safety today and that you'll have an abiding blessing on each household. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.